listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacist Podcast, a show designed to shed some light on a very unusual pathway into medicine. I'm your host, Nathan Gartland, and I'm a licensed pharmacist and second-year medical student. I'm also the author of PharmD to MD and the owner of the Physician Pharmacist Company. Most pharmacy students and professional graduates are aware of the possibility of going to medical school, but very few actually take the leap. We are here to unpack some of these details and open your eyes to the possibility of a career in both pharmacy and medicine. In today's show, we're going to cover many different milestones along the pharmacy to physician journey. We will wholesomely investigate the life of of a pharmacy graduate, lessons from pharmacy residency, pharmacy fellowships, and teaching in academia, along with the decision to explore medicine later in one's career. We will discuss the outcomes of this transition and learn how to have a fulfilling career in healthcare. I'm very excited for our seventh and final episode of the Physician Pharmacist Podcast mini-series, where we will be interviewing Dr. Stephen Burke, a senior internal medicine attending with a substantial pharmacy history. Dr. Burke first began his journey in pharmacy at the University of Buffalo, where he graduated with his bachelor degree in pharmacy and underwent pharmacy residency training afterwards. He went back to school to continue his pharmacy doctorate education at the University of Chicago. And upon receiving his PharmD, Dr. Burke then continued his training in a pharmacy fellowship. He even spent some time in pharmacy academia teaching pharmacy students while balancing his clinical pharmacist responsibilities. After a few years, he was persuaded by a close mentor to continue his medical education at Stony Brook University in New York. He elected to complete a three-year residency in internal medicine and has been attending ever since. Despite all his accomplishments, Dr. Burke has a true passion for learning and recently completed his MBA from Cornell University in New York as well. Quite a long introduction, but I'm happy to welcome Dr. Burke to the show. Hi, Nathan. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for taking time out of your, your busy schedule. I know, I know you just t- told me you had a pretty busy day, but um, I just want to say thanks again. And I think you're going to have a lot of uh, great stuff to share with our guests. Just based on this introduction, I think we have quite a bit to unpack in today's episode. And our focus is to learn you know, what it takes to have a f- fulfilling career in medicine and how your pharmacy upbringing has made all the difference. While it's obvious you have strong roots in pharmacy, what caused you to pick the profession in the first place? Well, Nathan, I was an undergraduate student in college uh, at the University of Buffalo, which is, I guess, where you're in medical school right now, isn't it? Yep, that's correct. Yeah, so I was a, a, just a typical college student. I didn't, wasn't sure what, uh, what to study, what I wanted to go, go into, what I don't want to be when I grow up, et cetera. And I was, uh, my father was a accountant and he kind of encouraged me to go into accounting and maybe go into practice with him. And so I took some business courses and I was always interested in uh, math and science and healthcare. I, you know, thought about, so I took math and science courses and somewhere in my sophomore year, one of the 
people in the dorms I knew um, was a father was a pharmacist and he and Buffalo had a really good pharmacy school and he was applying. And I thought I would just, you know, apply. What the heck? Uh, I like math and science. Uh, I wasn't sure I wanted to work in the typical drugstore back at that time, but I thought Thought it might be a good springboard and maybe go on to get a PhD in some in some sort of uh, related field. So I applied to the pharmacy school and was accepted. And the next thing I knew, I was uh, a third year college student starting my first year of pharmacy school. Wow, that's incredible! And and at that time period, the pharmacy curriculum was only five years. Right. Uh, so getting so from what I understand, getting the pharmacy doctorate wasn't obligatory at that time period or wasn't uh, a mandatory component to the education process. So I, I'm curious to know, why, why did you choose to continue with that? I, I know you had a residency afterwards. Was that a major influence as well? Well, yeah, Nathan, um, yeah. like I said, I was interested in uh, all kinds of science and math and healthcare, and I thought I might go through pharmacy school and then go on to get a PhD in a related science. Um, but while I was in pharmacy school, I saw PharmDs. I met PharmDs I, uh, who were teaching didactic classes and in my clinical rotations, and I was very impressed. These guys were rounding with doctors and they seemed to be very well respected. And I thought, hey, I think maybe that's what I want to do. And I was working. I got a job in a pharmacy satellite at Erie County Medical Center. I don't know if you're familiar. It's a uh, county yeah. health center in Buffalo mm -hmm. working in a pharmacy satellite. My last year of pharmacy school up in the ICUs. And one of the and so I was a pharmacy technician at the time. I wasn't a pharmacist yet. And one of the pharmacists that I worked with was also moonlighting and he was a PharmD student. And so I asked kinds of questions and he advised me to do a pharmacy residency program first before thinking about going on to PharmD school. At that time, PharmD school was two-year program, a rigorous two-year program. So you would go to pharmacy school, we would do undergraduate uh, prerequisites would take up two years then you would apply to pharmacy school and then that would be another three years so I was in my fifth year of college and, and you would graduate after five years with a bachelor's degree it was the only degree I knew at the time that it would take a minimum of five years to earn a bachelor's degree so in that you know I was talking with this PharmD student, and he was saying, before you go to PharmD school, you might want to see if you like it. I would highly recommend doing a residency program in clinical pharmacy or hospital. At the time, it was hospital pharmacy. And um, I thought, okay, that's a good idea. And I applied for different residency programs. And it, it runs just like the just like uh, medical school residencies run now. There was a matching program, and you would apply to different programs and they would offer you interviews and then you would uh, later on you would rank the one you wanted to go to first second third etc and they would rank you and it all would go through a computer and you they you'd come up with a with a match you'd get matched somewhere and I matched to the same place that this farm farm D student who by the way 
is now uh, had a distinguished career at, at Buffalo, and I think now is is. Uh, uh, a distinguished professor. His name is Gene Morris. I think he's a distinguished professor of uh, pharmacy at the University of Buffalo. So if you ever run across him while you're there, please say hi for me. Absolutely. But he had done, yeah, he did this residency program at a well-known uh, pharmacy uh, uh, program at the time in North Carolina at Moses Cone Hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina. He told me all about it, and I decided I would apply there, and I applied to some other places as well, and the match, I was lucky enough to match there. So I packed up uh, my things and drove down to North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, and that's where I spent the, the next year. Uh, wow. And yeah, so that, I believe, I don't even remember the question you asked me, but that was, so, uh, yeah, I guess, how did I get into pharmacy? And then how did I decide to go on? And, and so that was the first step was this residency in hospital pharmacy where I learned a lot, I saw a lot, uh, did a lot of clinical things, did a research uh, project, and um, it decided, yeah, I want to go to PharmD school. Uh, there was a one of my mentors there by the name of Peter Gal, if I remember correctly, was also a, a PharmD graduate from Buffalo uh, and a pharmacokineticist. And uh, he was really helpful in, uh, in um, you know, helping me decide to go to PharmD school and, and, and pulling off this research project I did. There was a drug interaction study uh, between a drug interaction between cimetidine, uh, one of, uh, a brand new drug at the time, uh, H2 blocker, and lidocaine, which at the time was given to all patients in coronary care unit um, to prevent to prevent uh, primary arrhythmias and primary ventricular fibrillation. So anyway, did this uh, to make a long story short, did this pro research project, applied to PharmD school and uh, was looking for a program at that time. There were all, the, there were all these two-year funding programs, and most of them you would do a year of didactic classwork and then a year of clinical rotations. Well, I came across, across this program in Chicago, and by the way, it was, it's the University of Illinois in Chicago, not uh, the University of Chicago. So at the University of Illinois at Chicago had this unique PharmD program where instead of doing a year of didactic and a year of clinical, you would do both right from the onset. So you would have clinical rotations in the morning and then classes in the afternoon and then back to your clinical rotations after classes and then home to study at night. So I liked that idea because I was already doing a lot of clinical stuff in my, in my residency program in North Carolina. And so I thought this sounds like the program for me. And I applied and I was accepted. So the next thing I knew, I was packing my bags and driving up back north to Chicago. Wow. And I'm curious to know how, how many students in your graduating pharmacy class from, from your uh, bachelor's degree actually went on to continue their education? Because residencies in today's day and age seem to be relatively popular for a lot of uh, pharmacy students. So I'm just curious, were, were you an exception? Was, were there a few other people who followed your, your pathway? 
Well, uh, I don't remember how many. It was it was no more than a handful. There were actually the three, two other residents that particular year. The two other there were four other two. Two other people from my class in Buffalo also went down to this hospital, Moses Cone Hospital in Greensboro. So there were two of my classmates who actually joined me there, and then another person from West Virginia. And um, yeah, so I don't remember if there are any other people from my undergraduate pharmacy school class in Buffalo who went on to do residency programs. Wow. Don't remember. That's incredible. And so after you finished your, your PharmD program, you entered clinical pharmacy, you, you got a job. Can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the next steps in your career? I, the PharmD program was two rigorous years. And at that time, I was thinking about what I wanted to do after that. And one of the options was a fellowship. And while I was in PharmD school, I got very interested in cardiology as a specialty. And that was also influenced by my uh, mentor at the time, Jerry Bauman, who, who was a PharmD, who was a prolific researcher and amazing teacher. And uh, because of him, I was really interested in cardiology. And he ran a cardiology fellowship at the time at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And I worked out a deal with him so that I stayed on for another year after I got the PharmD to do a fellowship in cardiovascular pharmacotherapy. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> Just more and more school. And then after the completion, I'm sure that was relatively rigorous as how would you compare your fellowship oh, yeah. experience to your, your residency or excuse me, your PharmD experience? Well, there were no classes. <laughs> um, it was just, and it was all cardiology. Um, so all my rotations were in cardiology, uh, research projects, at least two or three more research projects completed, writing papers, submitting them for publication, working real hard. You know, I also was part of the general resident uh, post D residency program there as well. So I took call, I think it was every four nights or maybe every four or five nights, we'd take call and stay in the emergency room overnight, performing uh, or providing clinical pharmacy services. So I, you know, got a lot of good experience in car intensive experience in cardiology and not only general cardiology, but I, I, uh, Jerry Bauman specialized in arrhythmia pharmacotherapy, so antiarrhythmics, which at the time were used much more widely than they are now. So I, a lot, my research really involved antiarrhythmic pharmaco pharmacology and pharmacotherapy. And um, yeah, so that... I spent a, a rigorous year in that program, and then I decided to stay on at the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy as a junior faculty member. And uh, my clinical site was the VA hospital right across the street from the medical campus at that time. At that time, it was called the Westside VA Hospital, and my I was a, assigned to the 
ICU there. So I was the farm D for the, it was a combined medical and cardiac, cardiac ICU, coronary care unit slash medical ICU. Wow. And so, so you I were, became, yeah, yeah I became the farm D there. And I was part of the Department of Medicine at the Westside VA. Uh, I provided clinical pharmacy services. I also was involved in teaching pharmacy students in the cardiovascular and the didactic pharma uh, clinical cardiovascular um, classes there. Um, so I did a lot of teaching there. Um, I think by that time, they were transitioning to an all PharmD program. So uh, it was, uh, I, I think I was one of the early teachers teaching. They, they had like a crossover program. So they had this uh, program where practicing pharmacists could come back and get their PharmD program. I forgot what it was called exactly, continuation program or something. And then I think they were also, the, the new class of all PharmDs were starting at that time. So I was involved in teaching mostly cardiology courses and working at the VA hospital, providing clinical pharmacy services and uh, having residents, pharmacy residents with me there. And how many years were you uh, doing this multi-effect, I guess, different roles in pharmacy? Was it a you know couple years and then you decided to switch over into medicine? Uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I stayed at the University of Illinois for three years in that role. So I was there for a total of six years, two as a, for PharmD school, one for fellowship, and then three years on faculty as an assistant professor in the College of Pharmacy and a practitioner at the Westside VA. I stayed there for three years and then wanted to move back to New York where my roots were and all my family was. And I took a position at the College of Pharmacy at St. John's University here in New York. And my clinical site there was at the Long Island Jewish Hospital in the CCU there. So I was the PharmD in the CCU there and did a lot of, and, and ran the cardiology section of, for a pharmacy program at St. John's. And were you also involved in academia at St. John's or was, was that something that felt yes, more? Yes, I ran the, the, okay. No, 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 it actually increased. I actually <laughs> ran the didactic section for pharmacy students. I think St. John's was still, I remember correctly, boy, you're really testing my memory here. But if I remember correctly, St. John's was still on the five-year bachelor's of pharmacy program. And they then and they had a PharmD program as well with a few, with a handful of PharmD students. So they were still, they were, you know, University of Illinois was an early adapter to the all PharmD program, but St. John's hadn't gone that way at that time. So I was teaching didactic class. I was the coordinator for the, uh, believe for the um, cardiology section um, for the pharmacy student, for the undergraduate pharmacy students and the PharmD students. So I did a lot of teaching, uh, a lot of didactic teaching at St. John's and also a lot of clinical teaching. Wow. 
And so then during all this exposure, obviously you have quite a prolific career in, in pharmacy. What started to interest you in medicine and what, what caused you to, to start looking into a, a different specialty considering you had such a robust career in pharmacy already? Well, yeah, the seed was there and I have to go back to University of Illinois in Chicago at the Westside VA Hospital I was telling you about. I became the PharmD not only in the ICU, but also for the Department of Medicine there. And there was this gentleman, uh, an internal internist by the name of Clifford Pills, P-I-L-Z, may he rest in peace. And he was the chief of medicine at the Westside VA, and he was an old school doctor. You, you know, he was the kind of guy you trembled in your boots when you presented in front of him. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was old school. And uh, he took a liking to me. I worked really hard. Uh, he got me up and, and I, I attended the morning report. Every morning, he ran a morning report for the medicine residents. And it was in a lecture hall and he called people up to present cases and I was the PharmD and he would call me anytime there would be a pharmacology question, he'd ask me and he would have these things called dingleberries. He would have these things where he would ask people these esoteric questions and of course nobody knew the answer and he would say, well, tomorrow you'll know the answer. And you'd have to go home and study up on it and, and come up with an answer for the next day. So he would assign me all these dingleberries and I would come back the next day with the with the answers as best I could. He took a liking to me. I would go to after morning report, there would be uh, another you would go back to his office and there would be all these leather couches and each team on the medicine service would meet with him one day a week. And so there, we'd go into his office and there was a team there and there would be um, some of them nurses and uh, other administrators. And he would you, you would go, and I would go to that every day as well. And so one day he was and, and you know, he asked me to, pr to present grand rounds on two occasions, which was quite an honor for a, a pharmacist at that time to be asked to present at medical grand rounds. And I worked really hard on the presentation and uh, I didn't think he, I didn't think, you know, it, it would be, it was shared with a physician. And so, um, you know, the, the physician, I was always really well prepared and I'm not, I was probably more prepared than the physician who gave the grand rounds. And the next day at, uh, at medical morning report, Dr. Pilts, well, you know, he gave me a standing ovation for my uh, performance at Medical Grand Rounds. I remember, the first one was on warfarin, warfarin toxicity. And I, I, I entitled the name of my talk, I still remember, it was Warfarin Toxicity Sweet Clover Disease. So you can, you can look, uh, look that up, Sweet Clover Disease. And uh, next one was on Neuroleptic Malignant Syndrome. So anyway, he took a real like, I did a good job. He took a liking to me and he, he would always ask me, so when are you going to medical schools? He, and, uh, you know, he was the kind of guy who was interested in medical history. And so we learn all these esoteric things about famous physicians and medical history. And so he put the, you know, he, there was a seed there, but he definitely uh, watered the seed in me about going to medical school and.
And, um, you know, then I, when I went back to, when I moved back to New York, I was in the CCU at Long Island Jewish Medical Center in St. John's and pharmacy wasn't as advanced. Clinical pharmacy wasn't as progressive and advanced in New York as it was in Illinois at the time. So whereas at the University of Illinois, it was a very unique program. It, they had a PharmD on, an attending PharmD on every service in, in the hospital, you name it, pediatrics, ICU, cardiology, GI, you name it. They, and they, they had a pharmacokinetics lab at the university. They had a major drug information center at the university. It was, it was quite a, a program at the University of Illinois. Uh, and um, so when I went to New York, moved back to New York, pharmacy was not a was recognized as much. And I really had to kind of prove myself there. And, and I did. I got in with the, with the cardiologist there, did a paper, did a research paper on another drug inf- interaction paper on uh, heparin, nitroglycerin interaction. There was, uh, one of the cardiologists just asked me about it and thought it would be a good idea to do a study. So I took the ball and ran with that. And it was a it was a difficult study to do in a difficult setting. And but I was able to pull it off, got a paper published in the American Journal of Cardiology at the time. But it was but also some of the at least there was one pivotal resident. She was a rehabilitation medicine resident doing a rotation in the CCU. And she saw I was a little frustrated sometimes. Um and how it was difficult to break in with the cardiologist there. And she told me, you know, I have a friend who was a farm D just like you. And she got a little frustrated with it and decided to go back to medical school. And she loved it. And you should really think about it. And I was like, really? You know, really? Wow. Tell me more about it. <laughs> and so I'm like, I, you know, I thought about it, but I don't know, you know, I didn't even know what to do. And she was like, well, first thing you got to do is take the MCATs, you know, and you, and, uh, you know, it had been quite a while since I took organic and in chemistry and even just, you know, freshman biology. And I had, I had never taken physics. I think you mentioned you didn't, I took one half for pharmacy school. I think I only had to take a half a year of physics. I never mm-hmm. took the second part of it. So I had to, uh, so she said, well, first thing you got to do is pass the, you know, MCATs and you should enroll in Stanley Kaplan. And so I enrolled in Stanley Kaplan. And I spent the worst summer of my life in the bowels of the Stanley Kaplan uh, <laughs> Center. You know, at that time, it was all it was all tapes. It was all audio tapes and books. And so you would listen to these audio tapes. You would take the exam. You would then you go back to the audio tapes and review all the answers you got wrong. So I did that for an entire summer. And then I took the MCATs and I did reasonably well. I guess well enough to get into medical school. And so I got it. I was accepted to medical school in Stony Brook, which was near my home. And by that time, uh, I was married and didn't want to move. So I thought, this is great. I'll just stay here. And I had to take the set. You know, I was accepted contingent on passing the second half of physics, which I did at a local community college. And that was not a big deal. And next thing I know, I was enrolled in medical school. Wow. 
And I'm glad you brought up the, the prerequisite with physics, because that seems to be a, a big problem for a lot of uh, pharmacy students that I work with just in today's current day and age. Um, right. Exactly. So tr- making sure that they have their entire application ready to go, but then, oops, I forgot to take physics, you know, right. um, so that can be problematic for some. So I love that. But so that started your career into medicine. You had a lot of mentors and the change in practice setting kind of gave you the spark to, to transition and try it out. Um, so I'm curious to know, how, how was your experience in medical school and how did it compare to your pharmacy training? Because you had already been a practicing pharmacist at operating at basically at the top of your license. Right. Well, medical school was obviously rigorous. Uh, I loved it. I, you know, I devoured it. You know, when, you know, when you can ap- apply things that you're learning to past experiences, it makes the learning so much easier and more interesting. So having that experience was great. Uh, a lot of it was easier for me than my other, my traditional medical school student classmates, uh, because I was learning it, most of it or a lot of it for the second time. But you know, every time you learn something, you know, we all learn by repetition. Every time you repeat the learning, you take it to a new level. So I think when I was studying in medical school, it was easier for me. And I think some of my classmates were a little either jealous or intimidated. But, um, you know, I took it to a new level. Every time I read something, I had already learned about and seen in practice, it, it, it just meant, meant so much more to me. And I was t- able to dig deeper into it. And, um, you know, there were certain courses that I never took, which like anatomy, I mean, I just de- devoured anatomy, because I learned all about, about medicine in my pharmacy career, but I never had an anatomy course. I don't know if they have anatomy courses nowadays in, in PharmD programs. But I think they did at the University of uh, UCSF, California. I think they had an, one of my one of my colleagues at the time told me he had an anatomy class. But anyway, I devoured anatomy. Getting to to see and learn the intricacies of human anatomy was just it was it was beyond belief for me. It's it one was of my- just great. One of my least favorite classes and one of my favorite classes at the same time. <laughs> right. um, and you're you're right, not having that that background definitely was another challenge um, compared to some of my other courses um, that I'm experiencing right now. Um, and, and a lot of medical students or other PharmD um, to medical school uh, students that I've I've worked with also have like the same kind of complaint. So uh, it's very interesting. And I'm I'm curious to know. So obviously, as you progress through medical school, you enjoyed it. You enjoyed how much time you were, you know, investing and studying and learning new material. How did you end up on internal medicine? And I'm curious to know, because you, you mentioned cardiology was a big, big interest of yours. What, what happened with that? Um, and I guess, why did you settle for, not necessarily settle, but why did you select um, internal medicine? Well, you know, I just loved everything. I loved surgery. One of my best rotation in medical school was surgery. I just, I couldn't believe it was so, I, I was just awed by, by surgery and really, you know, took to it. And I, had, uh, my teachers and, and the surgery residents and people I work with, you know, saw my interest in it and, you know, 
like they do with everybody in medical school. They try and get you to go into their, their, their specialty. And they were like, you should go into surgery, you know, surgeons are the best doctors. And, and I believed it. And I really wanted to go into surgery, but at the time I was already older and, you know, I had a family. My, actually my, my first daughter was born in my fourth year of medical school. So I, you know, you have, you have to balance your home life with your career. And at that time I thought, um, you know, and of course internal medicine was my love to begin with. So, and I I had always had every intention of going into internal medicine. So I, that was it. I I thought, actually thought I was going to go into cardiology at the time I applied for residency. You know, you need to do internal medicine before you do cardiology. Mm-hmm. So I went into internal medicine with the pro- with the idea I probably would go into cardiology afterward. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, it makes sense. Life kind of takes over, and you have to find that work life balance of Do I really want to spend another ten years in in the OR versus you know being done at being an attending after three years of residency training and still getting to enjoy your life outside of medicine? So I think that's also an important consideration. Um, yeah. So now that obviously you've been attending for, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is your, uh, you're approaching your 28th year as a practicing physician. I've been here in my current job. It'll be 24 years in uh, July and then three years of residency. Yes. So I've been a doctor for, I've been a physician for 27 years. 27. And I guess my question for you is, does anything surprise you anymore? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, yeah, nothing really surprises me. Um, Nothing really surprises me. I mean, I guess you could say the COVID epidemic or pandemic, you know, was a surprise. I never thought I'd see anything like that before. So uh, the the pandemic was probably the, yeah, and it's so recent too, but that's, that was surprising. The, the, extent uh, of the uh, pandemic and the uh, amount of changes in the world and and medicine was just uh, mind-boggling yeah yeah and i guess would you be able to reflect then on how much healthcare has changed as a whole since the start of your training i think it's just fascinating to see how like technology and research has brought so much forward with medical care Uh, Can you think of like a particular innovation that really changed medical practice forever? I mean, there are so many. Uh, I've seen so much come and go. I mean, all the all the meds we use now, most of them weren't around when I when I started out in pharmacy school. All these class, I think I mentioned cimetidine, you know, back then that was a breakthrough medicine. The histamine two blockers were breakthrough back then. It was in, I remember working in that satellite I was telling you about in Erie County Medical Center. All we had were liquid antacids. I remember like packing, you know, patients who were in the ICU were, they were prophylaxed for stress ulcers. And it was a nurse would have to give up dose of Maalox or Mylanta, like via an NG tube every two hours. I remember like they all those antacid cups wouldn't fit in the, in the uh, patient uh, drug box. Um, so that was like huge. I mean, that was like the breakthrough histamine blockers, a pill that you can take that actually, uh, you know, treated, uh, 
a peptic ulcer disease. Um, all of the blood pressure medicines that we use now, all the classes. I, mean, I remember verapamil. One of the studies I did as a PharmD student was in verapamil, a, a, a sublingual form of verapamil with Jerry Bauman. And um, that was interesting. I got to learn. I, I collaborated with pharmaceutic, pharmaceutics professor developing this sublingual verapamil to be used for, to treat acute, acute episodes of, of uh, superventricular paroxysmal supraventricular tachycardia. Um, and so verapamil was a new drug at the time. I remember when it was like a number. I was reading research papers and there was this new class of calcium channel blockers, which was just a number. So that the ACE inhibitors didn't even exist at the time I was a pharmacy student. I remember going to this gala affair put out by the pharmaceutical company in Chicago when the, this breakthrough new class of drug called ACE inhibitors and Captoprel was the first of, of the kind. And, you know, that was that was a breakthrough much less angiotensin blockers and all the new categories of antihypertensives. So, so that was new. And then the thing, another thing would be like the antiarrhythmics. I spent a year of my life studying antiarrhythmia pharmacology and spent time researching. I spent time looking over files in the basement of the medical school in Chicago dusting cobwebs off of these old files of studies of electrophysiologic studies that were done to evaluate a new drug uh, called amiodarone at the time. And then, so I became this expert in antiarrhythmics and that at the time um, pacemakers were becoming high tech and then defibrillators were coming into use and were evolving at the time. I remember the first defibrillator I saw a patient had was a was a box. It was it was like a clock. It was a picture like a round clock about six inches in diameter. And it was that was the battery and it was placed in, in the abdomen abdominal cavity. That was the first wow. uh, an, automatic <laughs> defibrillator. And now they put them into into the heart, into the chamber of the heart. Um, but yeah, so because so learning being an expert on arrhythmia pharmacology became like obsolete because like a lot of these drugs, well, first of all, new studies were coming out to show that these drugs actually shorten life. That people were dying suddenly from taking these medications when when there wasn't a when they didn't really need them. They thought they needed them at the time to suppress uh, ectopy, to, to, to suppress PVCs. If you had a PVC, it sounded bad. And a drug that could suppress it sounded, that sounds like a great thing to do. But it was actually, people were actually dying sooner because of these drugs. And then these defibrillators came out and they replaced the need for a lot of the antiarrhythmics. So that was a huge change. Um, and it was one of the things where I decided I wanted to go into general medicine because you never know what's going to be obsolete, you know, 10 years from now as medicine and technology advances. So, uh, other things like uh, the HIV, uh, the HIV epidemic, 
pandemic, I guess that it was, and uh, is, uh, you know, came into, came into light just at the time I was doing my first residency program in farm pharmacy in 1983. And, um, you know, at that time there was no cure. People were dying from it. It was a death sentence. It was, it was like metastatic cancer. You were going to die from it. And then, you know, the, uh, Technology has come so far since then. You know, we first started, you know, first the first, first antiretrovirals, um, um, trying AZT uh, came out, and that was a breakthrough. But it's still people were still dying. And you know, to make a long story short, short now people are, you know, I saw people having to take multiple pills, buckets of pills, several times a day. But at, at least they were like surviving. And now it's like one pill a day and people live a normal, uh, <laughs> normal lifespan. It's, it's like having diabetes, you know, take a medicine and, and you live a normal lifespan. So, I mean, these are just, just, just a handful of things that I can think of uh, to answer your question. Yeah, that, I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible just to look back and see how much change has occurred over that time period. You know, just in my recent practice, I, I remember some of my professors talking about using, you know, ACE inhibitors and ARBs together. And, you know, now medical practice would obviously dissuade you from doing so. That's almost a borderline malpractice. So it's just kind of interesting to see, like, how these interventions have changed dramatically over time based off of a lot of trial and error. But I also understand you have to work with what you have at the time period, but it's just right. very, very cool. Cool. Yeah. And especially like you mentioned, technology has gone so far. Right? I can imagine, you know, like you mentioned that everything was paper copies, everything was in books and textbooks and very few things were, you know, electronic. And now we have such robust medical systems um, EMRs and everything. I, I'm just curious to know how, how does that compare? Is it better? Is it worse? Oh my gosh, Nathan, it's so much better. Oh, I can't tell you. I mean, uh, a lot of the doctors, uh, moaned and groaned about the electronic medical record, but I was an advocate right from the beginning. It made my life easier and it made patient care so much better. And uh, there's still a lot of room for improvement, but it's really, I mean, I think it's, it's just great, great technology. Absolutely. And, and even just medical information, like you, I think you started to say, I mean, back in the day, we, I would go to the, the library to look up information on subjects that I was researching I would go to the library and look in the stacks of what's called Index Medicus. Do you even know what Index Medicus is, Nathan? Uh, I'm ashamed <laughs> to say no. <laughs> Index Medicus was a, it was an encyclopedia, bigger than an encyclopedia, of books that had references in it. So you would look up a topic and you would then see papers that were published, references of papers that were published on that topic. And then you would have to go with a pad and a pen and write down all the different references from Index Medicus of articles that seemed like they would be relevant. And then, so you would go from that stack and then go back into the deeper part of the library where you would go into the stacks where they had all the journals bound in big, fat, heavy books. And then, so you would go with your list of articles that you wanted to pull and you would pull out these heavy books of journals and, 
and then bring them to the, your desk and then look over the articles and see what you thought you needed. And then you'd have to take the big, heavy book over to a photocopy machine and photocopy the papers. So, uh, you know, and now what do you do? You get on your computer or even your phone and you go to PubMed and you pull up the list of references and half the time you can, or more than half the time you can actually get the full PDF of the article. I was just, just before you called, I was doing that, pulling up an, an article on using aspirin to prevent migraines. And it was, I was just thought back of what I would have had to do back in the day where I'd have to go to the library and pull out index medicus, get the references and then go to the stacks to pull the article and photocopy it. So yeah, I mean, things have changed uh, dramatically. Yeah, I'd say a different time. It's funny, I get frustrated when I type a search query into Google and it's not on the first page. So <laughs> so I guess that's my yeah. tolerance for, for that. But um, all right, let's talk a little bit about your average day as an attending. You've been doing this for some time now, and I can imagine you're, you're pretty efficient at it. And you have a very good system for working through patients. What does your average day look like? And how frequently do you end up taking work home with you? I make it my business to rarely take work home with me, but I work, I work long hours. I probably average 10 or more hours a day here in the office. I see patients all morning and then I'm usually my, I'm usually eating my lunch while I'm answering messages and writing prescription refills and, uh, then I go back to see afternoon patients, and then I come back to my office again to finish up on all the messages that have accumulated throughout the day. Uh, I also teach a couple of about a month or so in the hospital. I go back to the hospital for a month or so, and I am a ward attending on one of the medicine services. And then there I would go make morning rounds. With the team, see all the new patients, see the old patients at the bedside, then usually come back to my office in the afternoon and see my own patients. And, uh, you know, the residents would call me and keep me updated on things. Um, you know, back when I started this job, I would admit my own patients to the hospital. Like the first 16 years when I, I was here, patient, any of my patients would get admitted to the hospital. I would be the, the admitting physician. So I would be admitting them. I would be called from the emergency room. So-and-so is here and needs to be admitted. Or I would send patients from my office to the emergency room for admission. And so I would be making rounds either in early in the morning or after my day in the office. I would go see my patients in the hospital. And then slowly but surely, the hospital hired more and more hospitalists and the whole hospital movement, hospitalist movement took over. And I no longer admit my patients to the hospital, which has made my life a lot easier or at least less hectic. But I miss it. I miss uh, seeing my patients in the hospital. And um, my, my patients for, for sure would rather me be taking care of them in the hospital than a, a strange uh, hospitalist. Absolutely. So that's pretty much my day. Um, I do have uh, first year medical students here for 
intro to clinical medicine. Uh, Monday afternoons, I have a first year medical student. I also teach in the, there's a MD PhD program here at Einstein Montefiore and the MD PhD students, after they do their first two years of medical school, then they go into the lab for five years. And so to get their feet wet before they go back for their last two clinical years of medicine, they have this clinic that they run at Jacoby Medical Center, which is part of this whole Einstein Medical, Einstein Montefiore campus. And so I precept there on Thursday evenings, um, trying to get these MD, PhD students back up to speed to go back onto their clinical clerkships. Wow. So it seems like that was actually going to be my next question was, are you still planning on doing, you know, teaching and, and staying in academics? And it sounds like you're, you're doing your part. Um, have you ever considered going back to teaching full-time at, at any point, or do you just love the clinical side of, of medicine so much? Well, I do do a lot of teaching. I mean, do the month of wards. I do my, I do some first year medical student teaching and the um, MD, PhD teaching. I also do some, noon conferences on certain topics for the house for the medical students and house staff. Uh, and I just start, I just actually this year took on a new role teaching a course in basic and clinical pharmacology to a brand new physician assistant program here at the, uh, through Yeshiva University, which is uh, affiliated with Einstein or has always been affiliated with Einstein Medical School. And so, yeah, I'm the founding uh, lecturer in basic clinical pharmacology to this PA program. Actually, tomorrow's their final exam for the year. Uh, I developed and implemented a whole course in clinical pharmacology, 24 lectures. Each lecture is two and a half hours and exams. And it was a lot of fun. I went back. I had to reread Goodman and Gilman. Do they still have Goodman and Gilman in, in uh, pharmacy school? I hope so. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> it sounds familiar, but my, it slips my memory at the time being. Yeah, it was it was the back when I was a pharmacy student in Buffalo. I mean, it was the Bible, Goodman and Gilman's pharmacological basis of therapeutics. And so I use that as one of the two textbooks in this pharmacology course. Uh, and I had to go back and reread it. But probably more more than the, probably the second or third time now, and of course, like I said before, every time you learn something again, it, you take it to a new and deeper level. So when I'm reading Goodman and Gilman now, preparing for these lectures, I have like twenty many decades worth of clinical experience to relate it to, and I try to teach that in in the class so to try and make the class a little less boring for these students you know it's a two and a half hour lecture i try and incorporate a lot of my clinical experience when when talking about the drugs and pharmacology that we're talking about i i i, I tell them stories about how this applies to uh, a patient i have or i've seen uh -huh. yeah I'm, I'm sure they love that too it keep the, it keeps them awake and it reminds them of you know this is why Right. This particular information is important and this is how it relates to clinical practice and changing patient lives. So I love that. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I also noticed, and like I mentioned in the, the start of the show, you obtained your MBA recently. And I'm curious to know, what was your rationale for fur- further adding to your long list of credentials? And I'm especially curious just because I'm considering getting my MBA at some point as well down the line. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, it was in sanity. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it was a great, it was a great, it was a great, uh, great two-year rigorous program uh i would highly recommend it if you have the grit you know which i I know you do nathan uh because i see the incredible uh efforts you're making not only going to medical school working part-time as a pharmacist and doing this whole uh venture into uh the pharmacy medicine interface so i applaud you for that and um and yeah uh the uh why did I go into, I, I, I was, I was kind of just sucked up into it. I was wanting to get more involved in, in more administrative things. You know, I, I practice on a micro level now and I was thinking about using my, you know, decades of experience in healthcare, uh, on a more macro level. And I was exploring ways in which I could do that. And I thought, you know, an MBA, you know, my, my, uh, my younger daughter was a business student at the time and in, you know, a business major in college. And she would ask me to help her on some of her papers and projects. And I was, and, uh, I would read some of the papers and helped her on it. And I was like, wow, this is interesting, this business school stuff. And uh, I thought, you know, it would really be useful to apply to my medical career. So I started just looking into programs, you know, not even serious about it, half serious about it. And I came across this program, uh, this brand new program through Cornell, which was a combined MBA and Masters of Science in healthcare leadership and the MBA was geared towards healthcare and all the students are, you know, half of, half of uh, them were physicians. The other half were either allied healthcare providers or in some in management or uh, business or uh, industrial uh, uh, business uh, of healthcare. And so I was intrigued by the program and I just wrote away for more information. And before I knew it, uh, I was filling out applications. And uh, before I knew it again, I was accepted to the program and I still didn't, couldn't believe I was actually going to do it. And it was a really hard decision to make. Uh, but it was just sort of a, the momentum was there and, uh, I got excited about it. And before I knew it, I was enrolled in this program. And, uh, like I said, it was, it was hard work. Uh, I was, you know, I can, I, I kept my day job. I kept my full-time medical practice and the classes were all on weekends and studying in the evenings, but I met a bunch of great you know, interesting people, both uh, classmates and, uh, you know, faculty, professors. And it was just an incredible experience, but it took a lot out of me, let me tell you. Uh, But I I got through it. And then, of course, as I finished, the pandemic started just as I was getting ready to finish the program. And so I went from that to the to the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I 
never look back. Wow. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And let, you know, talk to me, uh, off, offline and uh, I can tell you more about, uh, can tell you more about it Absolutely. or whenever you're ready. Yeah. Alrighty. So we are coming to the final few minutes of our show today. And I just want to ask you a few closing questions and we'll start out with to all of our listeners, how, how do you plan on helping promote pharmacies role in healthcare and or in the community in your current practice of medicine? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I, one of the other things I do here is I sit on the pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, the PT Committee. Mm-hmm. I've been at Montefiore Einstein and I've you know, been doing it for a long time, probably 10 or 15 years. And so it's run by uh, pharmacists and I'm extremely impressed by the way they run it and the things they do. There's a, there's a big pharmacy residency program here and uh, the pharmacy, big, big contribution and involvement in the PT Committee. So I'm keeping in keeping my hands in the in the world of pharmacy through that. And um, my wife is a pharmacist, by the way. And um, I I think that how to keep how to promote pharmacy as a profession and to utilize the education and training. I think that's going to come with. Uh, the electronic medical record, you know, f- further, further promoting and utilization of electronic medical record. But I, what I think needs to happen is I think there ne- it needs to be un- it needs to be a universal a universal medical record in order for you know let's say pharma- a pharmacist who works in a retail chain pharmacy in order for them to really utilize their education, training, and clinical expertise. I, you need to, you need the, the patient's medical records. You need the history. You need the, you, and so I think that the, the, and it will probably happen, you know, it's already happening to a great extent. Like here we use the EMR Epic. And so other hospitals, other medical centers like um, New York Presbyterian and NYU and Mount Sinai here are all on Epic. So when my patients go to see, go to the hospital or to other providers at one of those other institutions, and they come to see me, I can. Uh, there's a thing in Epic called Care Everywhere where I could look up everything that's been done for them at these other institutions, and the patients love it. They love it, and it makes my life so much more easier. It's so, so much easier. I don't have to get faxes and letters from other doctors, but it's but it's not universal at this point. So there are other big medical centers who are not on Epic, and you know it's the same old story. I don't have access to the medical record, and uh, the pharmacists, you know, and I I don't think that the pharmacists in working in the community pharmacies have access to patients' medical records. So it's it's real hard to be uh, to be clinical when you don't have the whole story. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's an economic thing, you know, it's a time thing. It's a, it's a, it's a time uh, volume versus value question. You know, the, you know, the, the bottom line is always the bottom line. And, um, you know, so, uh, I, I think places like CVS might be on the right track with their minute clinics, 
you know, bringing healthcare out into the community and primary care out into the community. Uh, you know, we're right into the neighborhood. Um, but I don't see how they could do a really, you know, valuable job without, you know, having access to the medical record. And then when they come back to see me and they were at my patients were at the minute clinic, I don't have, you know, total access to what they're doing. And, and then the, the whole, you know, the electronic medical record and the electronic prescriptions are, were a major uh, boon to, to medical care and to my life. You know, when I stopped having to write handwritten prescriptions and I was able to, just when I was able to start just printing them, you know, out and handing them to my patient, that was a huge uh, um, boon and uh, major convenience for me. But then when I was able to actually send the prescription directly to the pharmacy, you know, that was really good. But the problem is, is that, you know, I don't have access to the pharmacy's electronic medical records. So I can't see what, refills my patients have picked up and what they haven't picked up and what they're taking and what they're not taking and what other doctors may from outside institutions may be prescribing. So once, once we get the medical record universal and I, and and it's a two way street, you know, the pharma pharmacist can send the prescription renewal request directly to the provider through the electronic medical records. That would be, that would be great. And the other thing, uh, one last thing, I know we're running out of time. One last thing I think that pharmacists can do to really, uh, you know, create value for healthcare is to get somehow get involved in MedRec, medication, medication uh, regimen, uh, reconciliation. You know, that's a huge thing now with, uh, in, in, in most medical centers is, uh, med rec. Uh, it's one of these things press It's one of these things that it's on the press gainy, um, press gainy, um, review patients are asked, you know, when patients say, Oh, you just went to Dr. Jones and how did he do? And, uh, did, was the staff helpful? And, and, um, did they ask you about your medications, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's like one of the, one of the boxes that the, that medical administrators have to check off, you know, and, uh, did the patient, uh, did they ask you about your medication? So now what they do is they have, all the providers everywhere making sure that they ask the patients about the medication. But of course, providers are so busy and, you know, in, in the electronic medical record, it's easy to just click a box and say, yeah, I reviewed the patient's medications, you know, but, and I, that's like what I spend a huge amount of time doing and it's not an easy job. And a lot of times it's regulate relegated to people who don't have the education and training to really do a good job of it, uh, low level, you know, med techs and things like that. And so if I would love to have a pharmacist be able to review, uh, do my med recs for me before, or, you know, while I'm seeing my patients, it would be a huge, it would be huge. It would be a great thing for patient care. It would get pharmacists doing the things that they're trained to do. Uh, and, you know, so I'll, I'll leave it with that. Somehow uh, people from your generation need to figure out or pharmacists from your generation need to figure out how they can get involved in medication reconciliation because Absolutely. it would be it would be it would be major. 
Yeah, in the era of uh, polypharmacy and obviously multiple, the, the growth of multiple uh, subspecialties in medicine, there's there's sometimes too many cooks in the kitchen and a lot of information oh is lost in translation, which uh, I definitely can appreciate. But yeah. I, I love that. So great points. And looking back, this is our final question before we start to wrap things up. Looking uh-huh. back, do you have any final tips for pharmacy students interested in making the switch into medicine? Wow. Um, final tips. I mean, you gotta, it's, you gotta have it in your heart. You know, it's gotta be in your heart. You gotta really want it. You gotta, um, because, you know, you could have a great career in pharmacy as well. You know, I think if I would have stayed in pharmacy, I would have had a great career, a productive, successful career. But I think for me, you know, not for everyone, but for me, there there would have been something missing. I would have always thought, you know, what if I would have went down that route? And I think I probably would have always like thought, you know, what what if I would have been a, a, you know, provider, a physician, you know, who could prescribe the medications and, um, you know, really have the the full the 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 whole thing the whole bag of tricks and medical education so you gotta want it gotta love it and uh you gotta if you do i'd say go for it absolutely and it's funny i love that you brought that up because when i was actually in the process of applying to medical school Myself um, and two others were actually other pharmacy students that I had been working with were also interested in going to medical school and myself and one of them ended up going through with it. But the other individual took the MCAT and did well on it and decided at last minute that they wanted to have a life in pharmacy. And it took a lot of, you know, it was a lot of respect to study for the MCAT, do all this work for two years or for an entire two years and then decide last minute, you know, I'm, I'm content with where I'm at. I want to work and I don't want to go to more school, add more debt and and so on. So, you know, and to him, he had, he had proven to himself that, okay, I I did well in the MCAT. Like I had this life, I I could have had this life, but I'm I'm going to be happy with where I'm at. So, and I think a lot of students, you know, experience that same kind of a, uh, mentality. Um, yep. all right. And it's never too late. He could always change his mind. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. 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 All righty. So we have come to the end of our interview and I'd like to thank our listeners for their support today. If you have additional questions about the medical school journey, check out my website at www.physicianpharmacist.com. Before we let you go, uh, Dr. Burke, how can our listeners get in touch with you? The best way would be through LinkedIn. I'm uh, easily found on LinkedIn. And the spelling of my last name is B-E-R-K. My first name is Stephen with a V. And uh, search me on LinkedIn and send me a note. We'd be happy to hear from you. Wonderful. Alrighty. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Dr. Burke. And I realize you're a super busy individual, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I I can't thank you enough for for your uh, participation in this project that we're doing. Thank you, Nathan. I enjoyed it a lot. Alrighty. Well, take care and have a wonderful week. You do the same.